praise God. Can we just thank this worship team and the choir here? I don't know if you heard that statement, we've gone to church. I think today we went to heaven. <laughs> That's what it's going to be like one day, amen? Gathered around the throne, uh, just worshiping uh, together. Well, it's, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to see some of you uh, back from college. Welcome back. Um, it's good this morning to have my mom in the house. She's here with us. Um, she, you know, she texts me every Sunday morning pretty much and just says, I'm praying for you, love you. And so um, think about her life and my, my father's life, so many years that she poured into many of you. And uh, just honor her and grateful for her. My sister's also here up from Florida, I guess. I guess she's a Floridian now, but uh, don't, don't the rest of you get any ideas, okay? And then uh, my little nephew, Eric, is there. Eric, what's up, buddy? See if you say hi. Oh, there he goes. But it's good to be together. Amen? If you have your Bible, open up to Romans chapter 3. If you're on your phone, you can go to the ESV. That's the translation I'll be reading from. Uh, before we get into our text today, there's a lot I want to cover this morning, so, so bear with me, okay? We're going to try to make some ground uh, this morning, but I want to remind you where we've been and kind of tell you where we're going. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, Paul writes these words. He says, for in it, he's referring to the gospel, he says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Right away in uh, this letter to the Romans, Paul is building his case for justification by faith. He's going to let us know that the only way that man can be made righteous is by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, in order to do that, he first has to deal with all the other ways that we would try to make ourselves righteous. He's going to bring us to the point, verse 23 of chapter 3, where he will say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so first he addressed the immoral person. Remember, the, the one who wants nothing to do with God. He doesn't want to hear about him. He doesn't want his direction. And he said that that immoral person will be given over to their desires and those desires will destroy them. And then he addressed the moralist, the one who feels morally superior to the immoral man. The one who feels like he's a, he's a pretty good man when he compares himself to others. But when we're talking about God's righteousness, understand others are not our standard, right? God is our standard. And so the moralists fall short of what is required, which is perfection. And finally, last week, we saw Paul address his brothers and sisters, the, the Jewish people. And he said some very shocking things. He, he, he said that outward circumcision, the, the sign of the covenant, means nothing if there's not an inward circumcision of the heart. In other words, all the things we do externally mean nothing if we don't allow God to do an internal work. He says circumcision is really a matter of the heart by the Spirit. So hear me, whether we talk about the immoral person or the moralist or the religious person, the reality is we are all in the same boat. In fact, I think one of the best ways we can understand this is to think of these three men in a literal boat in the ocean miles from shore. Think about this. They're, they're so far out that they can barely see the coastline and the boat begins to sink and so the immoral man is the first to respond and he says, you know what? I'm just going to swim for it. And so he jumps out of the boat and he begins swimming in the direction of the shore. He makes it about 150 feet and then he sinks and he drowns. Well, the morally superior man sees this and the first thing he thinks is, well, he deserved that, right? And then with great pride, he jumps out of the boat and he begins to swim. 30 feet, 40 feet, 50 feet. He's doing pretty good. In fact, he makes it 300 feet 
before he sinks below the water and drowns. And the only one left in the boat is the religious man. And of course he recognizes he's better than the morally superior man because he's got the law, he's got the religious ceremonies. And so finally he jumps out of the boat and begins swimming toward the shore. He does so well that he makes it a whole mile before he sinks and he drowns. Now to me that's a perfect illustration of what it's like when we try to save ourselves. Right? We become morally superior or we become more religious thinking we're better off than someone else. And maybe we are. Listen, when we compare ourselves to someone else, we can say, I'm better than them. We see, I'm closer to the shore, but someone else is not your standard. And it doesn't matter if you make it closer to the shore if you still sink and drown, right? And so Paul's making the point that, that all of us are in a sinking ship and none of us can make it to shore on our own. What he's doing is taking all of us to that place where we have absolutely no confidence in and of ourselves to save ourselves. Because in order to understand the beauty of the gospel, we first need to see our deep need. In order to appreciate the cure, we first need to understand the diagnosis, right? Again, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul has already stated every single one of us are sinners in need of God's grace. Now, in our text last week, again, Paul said some pretty strong things to his fellow Jews. Remember he said that, that some of the Gentiles blaspheme God because of your behavior. We talked about how God will judge our actions and our words, not just our religious activities. Remember verse 28 and 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now I want you to think for a moment about how furious some of the Jews must have been when they read this, right? Because he's basically telling them, hey, you guys have, have missed the point. God's concerned about the heart because it's out of the heart that our actions flow. Listen, we, we know this. Anyone can perform religious activities and go through the motions and still have a heart that's not changed. When God chose King David as King Saul's successor, we're told in Samuel 16 that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And here's the good news today. God searches the heart. Right? Like even when we fall short, he understands our motivations, he understands our intentions. And here's the scary news today, God searches the heart. In other words, even when things look good on the outside and you're putting on a show for everyone else, understand, he, he sees our motivations and our intentions. And so depending on the day of the week, depending on the week, that can be good news <laughs> or that can be scary news. Are you with me today? And so as we jump into uh, chapter three, Paul begins by posing a question. That, that he knows is going to come from his fellow Jews. And it's very easy for him to come up with the question because remember, he had been very religious at one time. I think he's kind of looking back and saying, you know what, if somebody said this back when, here's what I would have asked. Chapter three, verse one, then what advantage has the Jew? It's a good question, right? If God shows no partiality and if salvation is open to all to come to God by faith in Jesus Christ, like if a Gentile can be a Jew inwardly by faith without keeping all of the, the rituals, without being circumcised, then what is the advantage of being a descendant of Abraham? Or he says, what is the value of circumcision? In other words, what good is the sign of the covenant if that sign can't save? Now, in order to understand these questions and, and why they're so important for Paul to address, you have to understand what the church in Rome looked like. When you think about the Roman government, the thing that was most important for them was what they called Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome. 
And, and that peace was, first of all, established by conquering all their enemies. They want peace? That's the best way to do it. Conquer all your enemies. We got peace. But once they were in control, the one thing that the Roman government could not stand was any kind of riot, any kind of uprising. They, they just wanted peace, and they wanted everyone to get along. That's why when the Jewish leaders arrested Jesus and they caused all this commotion, the Roman government felt like we have to get involved. But after Jesus rose from the dead and his spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, remember there were Jews from Rome that were there in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. And so they heard as Peter preached, they heard the gospel message, and they brought that message back to the synagogues in Rome. And as that message began to spread through the synagogues in Rome, there was a lot of dissension. <laughs> there was a lot of infighting within the Jewish community over the message of the gospel. And so in AD 49, the emperor, Claudius at that time, actually expelled all the Jews from Rome because of continued rioting over a man by the name of Christus. Sound like anybody you know? They were, they were uh, fighting over whether Jesus was the Messiah, right? And so they're arguing about Jesus, and, and Claudius says, you know what, enough of that, just he kicks them all out of Rome. And, and so the church in Rome at that time was primarily a Gentile church, but slowly the Jewish people came back to Rome. And the church began to be populated by both Jew and Gentile believers. And these Jewish believers, they, they came back in and they started to focus on all the signs of the Old Covenant. They would claim that the Gentile believers need to be circumcised in order to be saved. They would focus on the works of the law rather than faith. And so, again, as Paul says these things at the end of chapter 2, I imagine some see him as, as a traitor. And so the question is, well, what good is it then, Paul? If you're going to say that, what good is it that we're Jews, right? I, I think you could say the same thing for those of you who grew up in a religious household. Maybe you grew up in, in the Catholic church, you went through all the motions, you did your CCD class, first communion, right? And then you come here to Grace Point and we're like, you know what, those things don't save you. And you're like, come on, right? I've racked up some points, pastor, right? Well then, pastor, what good is it that I grew up in a Christian home with all these rules and regulations? You know, my friends were out having fun and, 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 I, and I didn't get to go do those things and you're telling me I didn't earn any credit with God? Understand, many of our religious rituals within Christianity are similar to what circumcision was for the Jews. It's, it's a sign, okay, that we're set apart. In the same way as the, the Jews, we've now been set apart as a people belonging to God. But remember I said last week, you can go to church your whole life, you can own a dozen Bibles, and still not have a change of heart. And so, okay, well then what advantage is there to growing up in the church? Now, Paul's answer here is directed to the Jews, but I think we could address it to Christians as well today. What advantage is there? Verse two, he says this. It's much in every way. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So Paul poses the question, and then he addresses it right away, and he says, man, there are some great advantages to being Jewish. First of all, we as a Jewish people have been entrusted with the oracles of God. The main blessing to be a Jew was to have the word of God. In the, in the same way, the blessing of growing up in a Christian home is the word of God. Now, above everything else, the, the Jews were keepers of God's word. They were keepers of his law, his covenant. They had both the commands as well as the promises of God. Understand today, to be around the word of God is a blessing. To be around the word of God is a blessing. We have both his promises and we have his law. We have his direction. And we have to be thankful today to the Jewish people who delivered to us the wonder of the Old Testament. Because in it, we not only have the law, but we also have the great promises of God. We have all the types and the, the shadows uh, of the coming Messiah. We have the prophecies of Jesus. 
We've also been blessed here in America with a government that's based upon the laws given in Scripture. It was the blessing of the law and the word of God that caused America to lead the way in ending slavery. It's the word of God that gave us a government with checks and balances. It's the word of God that taught us from the very beginning what is right and what is wrong. And and know this, that the world before Christianity was a very different world. And all those who are trying to silence the voice of the church today want to create a very different world. The law of the Old Testament, along with the teachings of Jesus, have given us so much opportunity, so much security, so much blessing, and yet many in our nation seem intent on reversing that blessing. But here's what we see. The more that we move away from God's law, the more that we move away from the teachings of Jesus, the worse things actually get. The more we see drug abuse on the rise and and depression and suicide on the rise. And and I really feel like it's come to the point that our blessings in America today are simply residual blessings from the believers that have gone before us. And so if the church is really going to be the pillar of truth and hold up truth, then we need to push back as we see things being torn down around us on a daily basis. Because here's what we have in our nation right now. It's really a clash between worldviews. A clash between a secular worldview and a biblical worldview. And understand, these two worldviews, when, when properly understood, are antithetical, meaning they're, they're directly opposed to each other. They are mutually incompatible, meaning they cannot coexist together. And that's why we see such destruction in our society right now, such, such a tearing down. You see, the biblical worldview says there are, are certain things that are right and there are certain things that are wrong. There, there are, as we talked about last week, there are certain distinctions that actually help a society thrive. But the secular worldview says, well, you know what, truth is subjective. Truth is whatever I make it to be. As our nation adopts this secular worldview, what you'll hear being taught to our teachers in our public schools is you have to believe your students' truth. Whatever their truth is, believe their truth. This is if each one of us can have our own truth. But hear me, there's not more than one truth. There's truth, and then there are lies. We either have absolute truth or nothing is true. Either the Bible is God's word or it's not. Either we base our lives on facts and sound logic or we go by our feelings. And hear me, as a nation, we're headed to a dangerous place if we think that abandoning the word of God will somehow make us a better people, right? That abandoning the word of God will somehow make us a a more tolerant people. And that's why even some churches and denominations are moving away from the authority of the word of God. Listen, when we look at our public schools today, I don't think our public schools are, are less religious. I just think they've adopted other religions. Throughout the month of June, you won't see a Christian flag flying outside of our public schools, but I can tell you there is another religious flag being flown in many of our public schools. And so here, get this, the Jewish people, they they had the word of God, and and that's a great advantage. And can I just say, as believers, it's an advantage to have the word of God, but we need to declare the word of God. It's an advantage to have truth, but we need to stand upon that truth. And we could say the advantage for someone who's grown up in a Christian home is that you're familiar with the word of God. Hear me, even if your heart hasn't been changed by the word, at least you're familiar with the word of God, which is the agent of change. And and so I just want to encourage parents in the house, keep teaching the word of God in your home. Keep speaking about the word of God. Yeah, you may not see the fruit right now, but you're planting within your children the word of God, which is ultimately the agent of change. And Paul goes on to ask two more questions, questions that he kind of knows are going to be raised. Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? 
Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? In other words, if some of the Jews were bad examples, that they actually caused the Gentiles to blaspheme God, does that mean God will not keep his promises to them? If some of the Jews were unfaithful, does that nullify the faithfulness of God? Understand, when we look at the covenant promises of God to the Jewish people, some of them were conditional. They were conditional upon their faithfulness uh, to keep their side of the bargain, right? Exodus 23, 22 is a great example of that. God says there, but if you carefully obey his voice, what Moses teaches, and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. That's a conditional promise. If you do this, then I'm going to do this. But then there are promises that are unconditional, like Ezekiel 36, 26, a beautiful verse, beautiful promise. God says, and I will give you a new heart. and a new spirit I'm going to put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. That's an unconditional promise of God. He's saying, I'm going to do this, right? Now, when speaking of covenants, the ancient way of establishing a covenant between two individuals was to cut a covenant. The Hebrew word for covenant is the word berith. It comes from a root word that means, if you're following on the notes there, it means to cut, to cut. And so ancient covenants were established by taking an animal and cutting that animal into two parts, and then the parts would be divided, and and those that are entering into the covenant would then walk between the animals. And what they were saying, in essence, was, man, if I don't keep my side of the bargain, if I don't keep my part of this covenant, may it be done to me as it is to these animals. In other words, may I be torn in two, may I be destroyed. Now, can God be destroyed? Absolutely not. No, but look at this. Genesis chapter 15, verse 9. If you want to turn there. If not, I think we have the scripture on the screens. He said to him, God speaking to Abram. He says, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut him in half and laid each over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, A deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace." You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So get this, God instructs Abram to to kill a goat, a ram, a heifer, right? Cut those animals in two. But notice, instead of both God and Abram passing between the animals, God puts Abram into a deep sleep, and so it is only God who passes between the animals. This was the establishing of the Abrahamic covenant. Understand, it was an unconditional covenant. It is an unconditional covenant that cannot be broken. It's impossible to break. Why can it not be broken? Because God alone made the covenant. 
God alone made the covenant. He is unable to lie. He, he's faithful to keep his promises. He's unable to, to break the covenant. You see, if Abram had passed between the animals, he would have been a part of the covenant agreement as a human. Abram would have been able to break the covenant that he made. And how many of you know we as humans are pretty good at that, right? But God's promise and plan was to make an unconditional promise to Abram and to his descendants to establish those promises in a way that Abram would know for sure that the promises of God would come to pass. Abram cut the animals, but it was God who established the covenant. And that covenant, if you think about it, was sealed with the blood of a sacrifice. That blood is what made it secure. Now, if you think about the new covenant today, Think about that. The, the new covenant is, is, is established. It's sealed with the blood of a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. It was established by God alone, and because of that, the covenant promises are secure. Even though Abram's descendants failed, God was faithful. His word was faithful. His covenant was faithful. He will keep all of his unconditional promises to his people. He cannot lie, and he cannot be unfaithful. Now, what about us today, right? What if we are unfaithful? Let me take the what if out of there <laughs> because we've already seen that we are unfaithful. And so what does that mean for us today? It means that if you're trusting in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, if, you, if your faith is in the new covenant promises of God, but yet you, you stumble and you give in to sin in some area of your life, and that sin grieves your heart, you don't need to live under condemnation because the scripture says if we confess our sins, he is faithful, and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our failure, in other words, our failure and our sin cannot nullify the faithfulness of God. Here's the beautiful truth today for all of us. It's that our failures, however great, they do not affect the faithfulness of our God. That's why Paul says there in verse four, look at what he says. He says, by no means. He's like, are you kidding me? Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And so he quotes Psalm 51.4, which is a psalm of repentance that was written by King David. David had just confessed that he had sinned against God, and he says, you know what, that sin proves that God was right and, and that God would prevail when he judged. When we talk about the judgment of God, God will always be in the right. And so our sin shows that God's declaration that we are fallen and sinful is absolutely correct. God judges as a just judge. He, he's always justified in sentencing, sentencing us. Now, he's going to say later on in chapter 3 that the wages of sin is death. And in other words, our sin has earned us death. Because in reality, when we are in rebellion against God, we are in rebellion against everything that is good. And God will be faithful uh, to his nature regardless of what man does. He will be faithful to offer salvation. At the same time, he will be faithful to judge those who reject his mercy and his love. Verse five, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Paul asks these questions because he, he kind of thinks there's gonna be a counter argument. And I, I think it's an argument that he's heard before because in, in chapter six he's gonna bring up this same idea again. And it's simply this. If I do wrong and that shows that God is right, then wouldn't he be in the wrong to inflict wrath upon me? 
Like, like if my sin shows how good God is, then how can God actually judge me? Now hear me, as ridiculous as it may sound, there are some that think that way. They think, man, the more I sin, the better, because the more I see of God's grace, right? Hear me today. Yes, light dispels darkness, but light doesn't need darkness. Unrighteousness is always evil. It is, it is always destructive. Our sin never adds anything to the goodness of God. Now, I realize in our world today, we don't often hear this argument. Now, I'm, Pastor, I'm sinning to make God look better. I've never heard somebody say that, at least not out loud. But our culture says something different. It says there is no sin. There, there, there is no such thing as unrighteousness, right? Verse six, Paul responds to those questions. Again, he says, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? He's saying if sin made God appear more righteous and God would be unjust in judging sin, then there would never be a day of justice. And this is one area which honestly our society struggles with right now because so many are crying for justice, but justice requires a final judgment. Are you ready for the final judgment, right? And and we all know that in our heart there must be justice for those who do wrong, otherwise life is just entirely unfair. Now, a lot of religions resolve this problem with the idea of karma. You know how that works out, right? They say, you know, the, the bad deeds you do, they're going to come back to you, right? And the good deeds you do, they're going to come back to you, right? If you're really bad, you're going to come back as a worm. If you're really good, you're going to come back as a millionaire, right? But there's a problem with that type of thinking because the only perfect man ever to live was Jesus. And think about it, if our good deeds came back to us as karma, then wouldn't we be getting continually better as a people? Like, like if all the good people came back as people and all the bad people came back as worms, wouldn't we straighten this thing out like pretty quick, right? A couple generations, we're, we're good, right? The world would be getting progressively better, but that's not what we see. Listen, if there's no day of judgment, then God is unjust. If there's no justice, there will only be chaos and pain forever, but if there is a holy God, there must be a final judgment. And if we long for justice, hear me, if we really long for justice, then we ought to long for that day. It's interesting because the judicial system in our nation right now is wrestling with some ideas and saying, well, we don't want to punish everybody for crime. We've got to think of another way. Rehabilitation's better. I agree. Rehabilitation's better. It's better if we can rehabilitate people so they don't repeat their crimes. The only problem is we don't have anything that can deal with the heart, right? And if the heart's not changed, if we simply educate criminals, but that education is void of the gospel, it doesn't change their heart, and so all we get is smarter criminals, right? They're not gonna get caught next time. They'll do a better job, right, of being a criminal, right? But, but the world refuses to address the need for our hearts to change. Why? Because their thinking is that man is inherently good. Now, here's an important question. Is man born sinful, or is man inherently good? It's a huge question. You see, if man is inherently good, then we just need to change the systems and the structures, and man is going to thrive, right? And so if an individual is not thriving, then you can blame the systems and the structures. We need to tear down the systems. We need to tear down the structures. Again, if man is inherently good, then the problem is with the structures that are put in place. But then you have to ask the question, how are evil structures put in place by inherently good people, right? You see, according to God's word, man is not inherently good. He's inherently sinful. And so therefore, what needs to change is a heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, that's the promise from Ezekiel, right? I'm going to take your heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Verse 7, 
But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. And so he's coming against this lie that Christians somehow encourage sin because they say it shows the greatness of God's grace. Of course, this was not what Paul taught. There were uh, those who were slandering his name by saying this is what he taught. And I love it because he doesn't even get into a debate. These guys are twisting the gospel. He says, you know what? Your condemnation is just. He's simply saying that those who would teach such things or accuse him of teaching such things that their condemnation is just. And if you think about it, if someone takes the free gift of God in Jesus and they twist it and they turn it into a license to sin, right? Like how twisted is that, right? How twisted is it to take the most beautiful gift of God and and, and pervert that gift and misuse that gift and mock that gift? Paul says again, their condemnation is just. Verse nine, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, here he says, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So he's going to continue to drive this point home. Paul's going to continue to do this, that everyone is a sinner. And God shows no partiality. He doesn't favor one race over another. Instead, he looks at the heart. Yes, God entered into a covenant with Abram. He made promises to his descendants, but most of those promises pointed to a coming Messiah whom they rejected. And so the scripture that he says, that, well, this makes you special. It's the very reason they're just as bad as everyone else because having the truth actually makes them more accountable. When we have the word of God, we can know right from wrong, and because of that, we ought to know today that we are desperately in need of God's help. You see, the, the law shows us that we fall short of God's standard. It's the word of God that convicts us of sin, but thanks be to God, that same word can show us hope and freedom in Jesus Christ. That same word, that same word can reconcile us to God. The spirit of God actually transforms our lives through the power of the word of God. But Paul's not quite done. He's not done trying to convince us of our sinful condition. Look at verse 10. He says, as is is written, he said, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Whenever Paul really wants to make a point, he quotes scripture, right? And so here he's quoting from the Psalms. He's quoting from Isaiah. And and all of this is supporting his opening statement. In essence, he's saying, if you don't believe me, guys, you don't believe the scripture because here's what scripture says. And this condition that, that he, this, this description, if you will, of the, the human condition that he gives, man, it's, it's pretty depressing, right? This is what is known as the doctrine of total depravity, total depravity, right? And at this point, you can almost read this and, and, and be like, enough already. Okay, Paul, we get it. What's the point? Here's the point. Don't miss the point. It's that we are completely unable to save ourselves, Now, in order to make his point, he's going to go through this inventory. You'll see now in these next verses of our bodies, and he's going to say every one of our body parts are corrupted by the fall. Look at verse 13. It says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. James 3.8 tells us that no one can tame the tongue. Like none of us in this room can say that every word that comes from our lips is completely gracious, right? All of us, we, we, we fall short in that area. Again, Paul says their, their throat is an open grave and that our tongue is a tool of deception. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, 
that our words come from our heart, right? And so one of the ways that Paul proves his point that all mankind is under sin is by dealing with the subject that we can easily see in our lives. Because our words come from our heart, our words then become a good indicator of just how wicked our hearts really are. He says that our words are the venom of asps or snakes. In other words, they're poisonous. Meaning our, our, our words can wound and wound deeply. You say, oh, no, no, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never harm me. Nonsense, right? Some of you know the deepest wounds in your lives are actually from things that people have said. So Paul talks about the mouth, and then he goes on to talk about the feet. Verse 15, he says, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they do not know. He's quoting Proverbs and Isaiah here. And, and, and we can read those words, and we can say, well, pastor, here's one area where I'm innocent. I, I, I mean, I haven't killed anybody, and hopefully that's true for most of us in the room, right? But here's what he's really talking about. He's talking about hostility towards those who are made in the image of God. Remember, Jesus told us if we hate someone, we've committed murder in our hearts, right? And so again, Paul's lumping all of mankind together as sinners who are in need of the saving grace of God. And don't miss his last indictment there. Verse 18, he says this, there's no fear of God before their eyes. In a way, that phrase summarizes the entire thought because every sinful action, every rebellion against God happens because we don't have a proper respect for him. Wherever there is sin in our lives, there is a lack of a fear of God. John Calvin said this about the fear of God. He said, in short, it is a bridle to restrain our wickedness. So when it is wanting, meaning when it's lacking, we feel at liberty to indulge in every kind of licentiousness. In other words, where the fear of God is lacking, sin abounds. That's why Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? It's only when we fear the holiness and the righteousness of God that we're really actually on guard in our lives to see that our heart is right before God. It's only then that we're listening and we're attentive to his voice. It's only then that we have, when we have the fear of God that, that we're careful with our words that come out of our mouths because we know those words can actually condemn us. Now, when God says there's none righteous, it's not because he somehow overlooked a righteous person. None means none, right? There's never been a truly righteous man apart from Jesus Christ. Well, you say, well, what about Adam? Adam before the fall, wasn't he righteous? No, even before the fall, Adam was not righteous. He was innocent because he didn't know good and evil, but he was not righteous. So often we deceive ourselves in, into thinking that mankind on its own seeks after God, but the word of God reminds us no one seeks God, and that's exactly why God draws our hearts to him by his Holy Spirit, and he offers us grace. He offers us forgiveness. Understand today, salvation is completely a work of the Holy Spirit because we would never look for God on our own. You know, there's been many times I've met people and I haven't seen them for a while and they come back into church and they're coming out of this place of desperation. Maybe they've made some poor decisions. Their, their lives are falling apart and so they start coming to church and say, Pastor, this time I'm, I'm on board. This time I'm serious, right? But only because they need something fixed and as soon as things start to get a little bit better, they turn away again. You see, many are not seeking God. They're seeking after help when they realize they need help, but they're not seeking after God. But when we understand, hear me, the condition of fallen man, we see that we have corrupt hearts that spew poison and lies and selfishness. We have corrupt hearts that hate our fellow man. 
And so Paul is straightforward. He's brutally honest. How many of you like brutal honesty? No, not, not really, sometimes. But I think he writes this way because he knows that we're so self-centered <laughs> that we think we're good. And, and it's only our, our, our pride so often that blinds us to our real condition. And so Paul was using the word of God to condemn the Jews and really to condemn every one of us. And when we come to this realization that we are enslaved by sin, only then can we have the right conclusion. And it's a conclusion that many in the world are missing right now. And they need you to declare. It's a conclusion that we're desperately in need of a savior. It's the understanding we can't do this on our own. And so all of us need the truth that Paul gives in this chapter. We need the reality check of scripture. We need the fear of the Lord in our lives. Now, here's the thing. If you have a small problem, all you need is a small solution. Like if my son comes to me and says, Dad, I want to go to the movies, but, but I got a problem. I need $15. Hear me, I'm not going to pull out $1,000 and give it to him, right? It's a, it's a small problem. I need $15. Okay, here's a 20 Bring me back the change, please, right? But if I pulled out $1,000, right, the solution would be way out of proportion to the problem. Now, with that in mind, I want you to think about God's solution to the problem of man's sin. Think about Jesus himself leaving heaven and adding humanity to his deity, being born as a baby in a stable, living a humble life, struggling, right? Being tempted in every way that we are, yet he was without sin, and eventually he goes to the cross where he bears the wrath of God for our sin and our shame. I mean, when you think about the cross, that's a huge solution, but it's also a solution that is appropriate to the size of our problem. That's how big our problem is before God. Now look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Don't miss that. Whatever the law says, it says to those under the law. Sometimes we read the Bible and we say, well, that's for somebody else. I mean, I gotta give that scripture to them, right? Somebody else needs that, right? No, it's for those that are under the law, right? He, he wrote it for those who are under the law. Really, it's for everyone. That every mouth may be stopped. The law should cause us, hear me, write this down, to shut up. Pastor, how do you say that in church, right? It ought to keep us from making excuses that we're somehow better than we really are. It ought to keep us from trying to excuse ourselves. Why? So that the whole world would be accountable to God. That the whole world would stand guilty before God. Now, guilt before God is a bad thing unless your awareness of your guilt leads you to that great solution that we just talked about. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. If you're like me, uh, when you see a problem, you want to fix the problem. I walk around my house, squeaky door, where's my WD-40, loose screw, where's the screwdriver, and miraculously, any problem I miss, my wife finds, it's just amazing. But our instinct when, when we see the problem of sin is the same, right? We say, okay, God, I got this. I, I can fix that. I, I can fix that. Just tell me what I have to do. That's why mankind is so attracted to religion, so attracted to religious practices. I got this. Let me do five of these and six of those, and I'm going to do this, right? We're like the boy with his finger in the dam. We're trying to hold back the deluge, but notice Paul says, it's not about you doing anything. You can't save yourself. 
The law can't save us. The only thing that, we can, that the law can do is to help us by showing us that we need a Savior. But the bottom line is that by works alone, no one is going to be justified. Works of the law can't save us. Again, the temptation is, God, just tell me what you want me to do, and, and I'll do it, and then I'll be good, right? Just know today that won't work. But, but, I'll, but I'll keep the Ten Commandments, all ten of them, right? Understand, even if you could live perfectly from this day for the rest of your life, it still wouldn't make up for all of your past sin. Like you living perfectly wouldn't make up for the guilt that you've accumulated to this point. You could attend church every time the doors are open, every, observe every single religious observance, but none of that really addresses the problem. The only thing that addresses the problem is a relationship of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because nobody, hear me, nobody is going to heaven without being righteous. As the worship team comes, as we prepare to close, let me say this, there are only two ways. There are only two ways to be righteous. You can earn your own righteousness or you can receive righteousness as a gift. You can earn your own righteousness or you can receive righteousness as a gift. Now when it comes to earning righteousness, like we said, it's already too late. God already saw you on the Palisades Parkway this morning, okay? It's too late. God's aware of your sin, right? And so earning your righteousness, that option's out. And now all that we can do is receive a gift of righteousness. That's where we're going next week, church. But I hope today you get the point that keeping the law is not God's way of salvation. It's not God's way of blessing under the new covenant. The answer for us is is not the performance of good works. It's not in the works of the law. The answer is in what we're going to get into next week as we talk about a righteousness that is given to us as a gift by Jesus Christ. Yes, the law is good. Yes, the law is helpful for us. Again, it gives us a knowledge of sin. It shows us, man, just how out of whack things are in our lives, but it cannot save. We need a salvation apart from the law, and next week, Paul's gonna tell us where we can find that. But let me just share with you the opening verses of our text for next week. I want you to leave here with some hope today. Verse 21, but now, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Understand, when Jesus went to the cross, here's what he said. He said, I'll take your sin and I'll give you my righteousness. Can I just say, as far as exchanges go, that's a really good exchange. We talked a few weeks ago about a poor exchange, right? Where we exchange the truth of God for a lie. That's a poor exchange. But exchanging my sin for his righteousness, man, I'll take that any day, all day, right? And here's what you need to do to take part in the next exchange. You simply need to surrender your life to him. And you need to enter into a relationship of faith and trust in him. With heads bowed around the room today, For some of you, today might be the first time you ever do that. Couldn't help but thinking as I was preparing this message that there's some of you that are going to come through the doors today hoping to rack up some points for yourself by going to church. Say, God, look at me. I sat through the whole sermon. It was a long sermon, right? That won't work. You can't sit through enough church services to save yourself but you can trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross. 
And so I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. When we look at God's word clearly, it shows us how far off we are. When we compare ourselves to others, we'll say, I'm not that bad, but that comparison doesn't do us any good because no matter how far off we are, we're still off. And so, Lord, I pray right now for everyone in this room, for everyone that needs to put their trust in Jesus Christ. That's every one of us, Lord, but you know there's some in the room that have never done that before. There's some in the room that have never taken their eyes off of themselves. And Lord, they're trying to earn their own righteousness, trying to rack up points with you today. And so, Lord, I pray today that all of us would stop trying to earn our way by our good works. And instead, Lord, that we would put our trust in Jesus, that we would put our trust in the great work that was accomplished for us on the cross. Hear me, Jesus wants to give you his righteousness today. And so in the quietness of your own heart before God, as heads are bowed reverently around this room, if you're here today, you want to put your trust in Jesus for the first time. If that's you, then you can tell him so right now. You can simply begin to talk to me right now. Begin to tell him, I'm not, Lord, I'm not going to trust in my own good works for salvation anymore. Tell him you're going to trust in what Jesus did for you. If you're telling God that now for the first time, would you just raise your hand so I can see it? But if you're praying that for the first time, praise God. Tell it to him. Tell it to him. He's the one you need to talk to right now. But even now, you can just begin to renounce all of your efforts to save yourself. And you can say, Lord, make it about Jesus. Make it Jesus. It's all about what he did on the cross. Hear me. You don't need to add works to what he's already done. You don't need the cross as a supplement to your good works. You need it as a replacement. And so, Lord, I pray for everyone who's putting their trust in Jesus this morning. I pray for those of us who just, maybe we need a reminder this morning that it's not about us. Lord, forgive us for falling into that trap of trying to perform before you. And Lord, I pray you would change all of our lives by your grace and by your spirit. Lord, I ask that you would send us from this place this morning, loving you more because we see all the more just how much you've forgiven us. And so Lord, pour out your spirit upon us today. Fill us, bless us, make us a blessing. Would you stand with me as we prepare to close? And let that be your prayer. Come on, just lift your hands before the Lord today. It's a sign of surrender to him. And just say, Lord, pour out your spirit, Lord God. Pour out your spirit upon us today, Lord God. Pour out your spirit upon me today, Lord. Fill me. Bless me, Lord God. Make me a blessing. Hallelujah. Let's just worship him. Let's focus on him before we leave this place.